take a Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6. I think it's on page 46 if you're using a, a Bible from the church. You can go ahead and grab that. Either way, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Thank you guys for leading us this morning as we have the privilege to sing to the Lord and about the Lord. And uh, I'm grateful that the latter has been taken away. Um, I was thinking for a minute they were going to have me preach from the latter, and I was getting vertigo just even thinking about that. <laughs> so, all right. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. It is a privilege to have your word before us. And we would ask, we would pray, Father, that in these next few moments as we consider your word that we've just read, that your spirit would be at work in our midst, stirring in our hearts, causing us to see wonderful things from your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now looking at the second word or the second commandment in what we call the Ten Commandments. We're trying to take uh, one at a time and consider them and, and what are the implications of these words for our lives today. I would just remind us that um, these ten words are really words of a father to his son. Israel is the Lord's son in this context. He has redeemed Israel. They are his. And, and so these words are not the means that you and I climb in order to earn a relationship with God. These are words that are provided to those who are God's purchased people, that we would know how to evidence our relationship with the Lord in terms of how we respond to Him and, and how we respond to each other. Two things I want us to think about now in this second word, just following the same format we did last week, I want us to first of all just kind of understand this second word better, understanding the Redeemer's second word, and then we'll move to some of the application or implication, and we'll consider the notion of practicing the Redeemer's second word. The, the first word that we saw last week, forbid the worship of a false god. You should have no other gods before me. It, it required the worship of the one true God. It, it, the first command is about exclusivity. It, that there, there should be no greater love that we have uh, for anything 
above the Lord our God Himself. Now this second word, the second command, forbids the attempt to worship the true God through the medium of a created object. And, and so this second word requires the worship of the one true God in the manner that the one true God prescribes. Whereas the first word last week uh, was, a com- was the command that was concerned with who we worship, this second word uh, is concerned with how we worship. Now, both commands, we touched on the issue, the matter of idolatry last week, the, the worship uh, worship via a created object, uh, and idolatry relates to the first command and the second command. Uh, idolatry can be uh, a vehicle for worshiping a false god, but as we'll see maybe a bit more of this this morning, idolatry can also be deployed as a vehicle for seeking to worship the true God in a false way. Now, really the crux, and I'll say this again when we move to application, the crux of the second command is that if we, if we approach the worship of God, we must approach the worship of God the way He prescribes and not the way we make it up, the way that we, we prefer. In other words, there, there, there is no true category of self-willed worship of the one true God. We, we have to worship Him alone, and we have to worship Him alone uh, in the uh, alone way that He prescribes to be worshipped. Now, before we go further, though, um, I want to look at verse 4 and the first part of verse 5 a bit more closely um, and, and, and try to get a grasp of what's going on in that verse and a half. Here, here's specifically what I think would be helpful to, to weigh into, lean into, and to sort out um, and that is, are there two separate matters that are being forbidden in this second command, the second word? Or is there just one thing forbidden, and that one thing forbidden uh, has two statements that describe uh, how to comply with that one thing? So, let me explain what I mean by that. Let's just look at verse 4 for a second and see what verse 4 says you shall not make for yourselves um, you should not make for yourself a carved image of of any likeness of anything and that's pretty universal but then he kind of leans into that and gives some specificity to that uh, so no no likeness of anything um, uh, that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is uh, in the water under the earth. Now, is, is this to be taken, verse 4, as a standalone order? If so, then what verse 4 is forbidding is art. That is the representational creation 
through visual images? If so, if, if, the, if verse 4 is a standalone uh, command, if so, think of the implications of that. Art museum, burn it down. Uh, that, that beautiful landscape portrait that you have in your living room, tear it down. Unless you charge me I, I, up here in a minute, those pictures that you have on the table of your grandkids, tear them up. Good, no one charged me, so. But I would just, so, most Amish do not, do not allow you to take a picture of them. Do not allow the posting of pictures because in their mind, they take verse 4 as a standalone order. Um, now, others say, well, it's not talking about art in, in, in general. It's, uh, it, it, could, it, could this not be just simply in places of worship? There, there shouldn't be any um, uh, created images, any, uh, any uh, art, artistic um, uh, details. And uh, if that's the case, then we really have to grapple with what are we going to make in the chapters that follow when the instructions begin to unfold in the book of Exodus pertaining to the building and the construction of the ark and the tabernacle and the furnishings. Um, there, is, there is much representational artistry uh, that go into the tabernacle. There's much imagery. There's cherubim that sits on top of the uh, the ark, the mercy seat. There are, there, there's imagery of trees. There's imagery of flowers. And, and boy, when we get to the temple uh, in the book of Kings, uh, it, it, it just even gets more explicit in terms of, uh, of the, the beauty, of the artistic beauty that is going into the design of the, of the temple. Skilled artisans, both in the temp temple and in the tabernacle, skilled artisans create a, a, a beautiful product, if you would, so I don't think we should take verse 4 as a standalone order. Now, now obviously, uh, not all Christians line up on the same page with that. And, I, I know, and certainly we want to be sensitive toward other people's consciences. Uh, and, and, and yet, I would encourage us to consider that what is stated in verse 4 needs to be immediately coupled with and joined to what he says in the first part of verse 5, so that they're not two standalone orders, but they are two aspects of the one order. So, so let me read verse 4 again, and then, and then immediately read the first half of verse 5. It says, You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. If you couple those two statements together, I think what is being forbidden here is that no images are to be made for the purpose of bowing down to them or serving them. In other words, it is not art itself that is the problem, um, but it is art as an object of worship. It is an image not the image itself, but an image that would be deployed for purposes of, of, of worship. 
let me, let me make the case for why I think that is. And I'll do this quickly, at least I'll try to. Um, but think with me, we get to uh, Exodus 32 uh, in, the, in the spring, Lord willing. And in Exodus 32, the people are, are tired of waiting on Moses to come down. And um, they feel lonely, they feel disheveled, they feel uncertain about their future. Uh, and, uh, and Aaron proceeds to make a golden calf for them to worship, a visual representation of the Lord. For when he says in chapter 32, verse 4, Behold, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then he goes on in, in verse 5 and says, And tomorrow, now, now that, the, that this image has been made, tomorrow we will have a feast to the Lord. So, so they are, are going to attempt to worship the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, but they are going to do so in a way that, that there's a visual representation of the God whom they are seeking to worship. This is, Exodus 32 is a second commandment violation. It is an attempt to worship the Lord via an image. And, and uh, unfortunately, Israel is going to be stuck in this bad rut for a long time. So like 500 years after the Exodus 32 incident, um, when the nation of Israel divides after the reign of Solomon, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, takes the southern kingdom, two of the 12 tribes, and Jeroboam breaks away from the nation and forms the northern kingdom of Israel, ten of the twelve tribes. And, and in 1 Kings chapter 12, in, in order for, uh, for Jeroboam to provide an alternative place for the people of God to worship, in other words, they don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship because that's now a separate kingdom from them. He, what does he do? But he, he, he formulates two golden calves, place one, places one in the town of Bethel, places one in the, in the town of, of of, of Dan, so that these representational images become the places where God's people are allowed to come and allegedly, supposedly worship the, the one true God. And, and Israel will have a hard time letting go of the, of the worship of the, of the golden calf. Even, even uh, decades after uh, Jeroboam uh, built the built the golden calves again. Uh, Jehu, who on the one hand was a very uh, passionate uh, king, uh, who uh, he's, he eliminated the worship of Baal in Israel. Second Kings nine and ten describes this. I mean, he took everybody out. Uh, any 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 of the prophets of Baal, any of the priests of Baal, any of the kings and sons of the kings who had loyalty to Baal, he eradicated Baal worship from Israel. So false worship. So in other words, he abided by the first command. But but it's interesting what he didn't eliminate was the worship of the Lord via the golden calf. In other words, there's a, there was this ongoing gnarly, nasty penchant that Israel displayed that they wanted to worship God, but they wanted to worship a God they could see and touch and manipulate and control. Or another illustration. This is illustrating that the the issue is not a, a, a visual representation per se, but a visual representation 
um, for the purpose of worship. In, in the book of Numbers, in chapters, chapter 21, when the people of Israel were complaining and groaning and griping once again, the, the Lord sent, we're told, fiery serpents into the camp and began biting people, and people began dying uh, from the, the poisonous uh, serpents. Um, and as they cried out for mercy, the Lord instructed Moses to make a, an image, a bronze serpent. It says there in Numbers 21, 8 and 9, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And yet, about seven or 800 years later, in the, in, when Hezekiah is the king of the kingdom of Judah, that, that, that pole that had the bronze serpent up on it, uh, it became an object of worship. And, and gratefully, Hezekiah had the sense to know to destroy it. We're in... Uh, in, in, first, in 2 Kings 18, it says, He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had, begin to, had made offerings to it. They began to worship it. So, so the issue was not the image that was made. The, the, wor- the problem was, at some point, the image that was made became an object of worship. They began to bow down and serve it. And then the second part of verse 5, let me see if I can try to make sense of that. It says there, for the second part of verse 5, where he says, You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Let me just stop there, a jealous God. Now, just remind you, each of the first five commandments or the first five words provide some sort of explanation wedded to that command. Uh, and each of these explanations are explanations about something, uh, about the nature and character of God. So, the first word, you shall have no other gods before me, that's coupled with the, uh, the, the explanation, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, uh, you have no other gods before me because I am the God who redeemed you. And, and now in this second word, the second command, where he's, he says we're, to not, we're to not to bow down to or to worship any image of anything created, uh, he, 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 he tells us something else about him. I'm jealous. Um, now, you and I probably take a step back when we hear that. And in part, that's because um, you and I most likely think of jealousy uh, as a negative thing. And there's good reason for that. You and I, more often than not, when we practice this thing called jealousy, it, it, it is a, a, a gnarly, um, ugly thing. Um, our human sinfulness um, distorts whatever good feature there might be in jealousy. Uh, and, and, and when we speak of a jealous person, really we're speaking of someone who is petty, 
someone who is manipulative and controlling. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's true as far as that goes. And, uh, but, yet, but yet when we use the term whole, uh, jealousy in reference to God, we, we have to back up and remember God is holy. Uh, and, and, and that is um, in, in everything that he's about, uh, he is perfect and just. For instance, like we think of the, the term anger, and we don't really know what to do with anger because, like, in some cases we know anger is a bad thing, in some cases anger is actually a good thing. And, and with God, His anger is always a good thing. Why? Why is God's anger such a good thing? And mine sometimes is, sometimes isn't, because God is perfect and just and holy, and I'm not. So I can distort and mess up whatever good notion there is to anger, and I can distort and mess up whatever good notion there is to jealousy. But when God is described as a jealous God, that's a good thing. It's a good thing because He is the God who redeems His people. In other words, He is the God who seeks out and rescues and comes and gets His people and brings His people to Himself. And being jealous, what that means is he is the God who keeps his people close to himself. God's jealousy is a good thing, for it reflects his loving commitment to keep us close to him. To keep us from becoming wayward or straying from him. In other words, what's our hope to ever finally get home in, in heaven, in eternity, our hope is that God is jealous. When his people start to go wayward, he comes and gets us. God is, this is a good thing, God is, in other words, God is not indifferent to our waywardness against him. Hey, God, I think I'm going to worship some idols. Are you okay with that? And God says, meh. That would be actually a wicked thing. And God's incapable of such. He says, no, I, I, I won't let you go there because it dishonors me and it destroys you. As we saw from our Psalm 115, those who worship them become like them. We become dead, lifeless, worthless, vain things. And God loves us too much to let us go down that trajectory very far. He comes and gets us and brings us back to himself. Why? Because he's a jealous God. But then it, it even gets more tangled up here uh, as it goes on in uh, continuing in verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, fourth and, and, and uh, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love um, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's think about this for a second. There's certainly a warning here, and there's certainly a, a, a promise going on here. Here's what I would suggest to you that the passage is, is, is teaching and not teaching. I think it does affirm that a father's iniquity does affect children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, third and fourth generation. Which, by the way, I find it interesting that in the northern kingdom of Israel, every new dynasty, Jeroboam and Ahab and Omri and all, they only lasted three or four generations, and then they were 
done. And they were all idolatrous. Uh, but what is not true, what is not true, so while a father's iniquity, uh, iniquity and sin does affect his or her children and grandchildren and so on and so forth, it is not true that children are judged by God for the sins of their fathers. And I would just point you to Ezekiel 18 to, to consider that. For the sake of time, we won't go there and weigh into that. I think what we should affirm is that parents do shape and influence the hearts of our children. But each generation bears the weight of its own sin. And I think it's bore out there when he says they're visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, so each subsequent generation that continues to hate the Lord will face the, the chastisement, the judgment that is deserved for that generation's hatred of the Lord. Your father's hatred of the Lord certainly had bearing upon your life, but you will not be judged by God because of your father's hatred of the Lord. The issue is, where are you at with the Lord? Do you hate him or do you love him? My, father, my parents weren't perfect, and, uh, and, and we use that as an excuse to get away with all kinds of supposed honorableness, but we don't get away with that before the Lord. The Lord wants to know where we're at with Him. And I would just add to that, notice what He's saying there. When we create images for the purpose of worshiping God, what does He draw? He says, that's, that's, that's the equivalent here of hating me. You say, well, I'm worshiping the Lord. I just need a visual to help me. Well, you hate me. I mean, that, that's, mm, that's stout, stout language. You see, a father's punishment can only be said to continue on subsequent generations if the father's sins continue to the subsequent generations. And each person has its own responsible moral choice to decide to walk in the way of our fathers or to walk in the way of the Lord. Now, let me draw some, some implications of this. Let me shift gears and go, move from understanding the text and maybe what it's attempting to say to us. But So how do we, how do we, how do we even today practice the issues of what is required and what is forbidden in the second word. I mean, on the one hand, we, just, we start with maybe just asking why. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, look, on the one hand, if it helps someone in their worship of the Lord, then what's wrong with some created images to help with that? What's wrong with it other than the fact that God don't do it? Uh, but, but I understand. So, so we, we live in a generation in which um, uh, sincerity of heart is elevated higher than even faithfulness to the word. You say, well, what does it matter if you use an image or not as long as you're sincere about that image? Well, that, that's, that's, that's condemned here in this passage regardless of the degree or amount of sincerity. And I understand that, that we're, in, we're living in an era that is a highly visual culture we are sadly living in a, an era that is a sub-literate culture. I mean, we're, we, we know how to read, 
but we're functionally illiterate. Uh, we're, we're more enamored by, by visuals than we are uh, by actually hearing and reading words. We, we live in a, in a multi-media, high sensory context, and, and that's even then applied to church settings. We have to say, you know, hey, we got to get, we got to oomph it up here, and, we, and so we've got to get the laser and light show. We've got to get the visuals. We got to get all of the, we got to get the fog machine, and we, I mean, we, we have to provide this highly sensory experience. Our, our people won't, won't know that God's there. Well. That's really the Exodus 32 thing that people begin to wonder, is God really there? Well, it would help us to know that God is there if we made something that we thought kind of looked like him, which I still don't know how you come up with a bull on that one, but, but it's beside the point, I suppose. Listen to what Moses says a generation after Exodus 20, what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I think it really gives us and some, uh, some additional backstory as to why uh, the second word is such a big deal. Um, and, uh, and it really goes to the heart of how you and I live in relationship to the Lord. What medium or media do we uh, have before us that we, that we are prescribed to put in play so that we could relate to God? And in Exodus chapter, I mean, in, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, uh, for instance, in, in verse 12, he kind of rehearses what would happen back there in Exodus 20. He says, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. I hear him, but I don't see him. It's what Moses is saying. You heard him. You knew he was there in that sense, but you didn't see him. And then he goes on in verses 15 through 19. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them the things that the Lord your God has allowed to all the peoples under heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you up out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are today. That was the reason why the Lord forbids a, a visual representation of him is that that is not the, the, the crux, the medium by which you and I, the people of Israel, or even us today, relate to God. We relate to God not through visual imagery, but we relate to God. It is an audio, audio experience. How can a picture of something... How can a sculpture 
or a, a beautiful portrait. Or even here in the Deuteronomy passage, how can simply looking at the sun or the moon fully take in and, and accurately capture the essence of our God? Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, and he says, in praise to God, he says, He is the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom is honor and glory forever and ever. Images can never accurately capture the King of ages who is immortal and invisible and the only God. Images mislead us, for they convey false ideas about God, for they obscure His glory, and thus they dishonor Him. Isaiah 40 and he asks this a number of times in this section of Isaiah. He says, to whom, to whom will you uh, liken God? To what likeness will you compare with him? And that's all in the context of, of speaking of the ills of, of idolatry, of, of created images. No, God meets with his people through the medium of his word. Even later, I want to, I, when we get there, we'll look at it again, but in Exodus 33 and 34, where the Lord meets with Moses, we're told on the one hand, face to face, and yet on the other hand, he met with Moses in an audible way, not a visual way. You see, we practice idolatry then, today, anytime, when we stop listening and start looking. When, when, when we look at or look to an image rather than listening to the Word. In other words, our worship, our lives must be Word-centered. And when I say Word-centered, I'm, I'm really talking specifically in this context about the revealed, printed pages of Scripture. Not our imaginations, not our hunches, not our intuitions, or any other nonverbal sense of what we think God may be like or what we conclude God may want us to do. When we start making it up, whether we put it on a canvas or let it linger in the brain, we commit idolatry because we've stopped listening and we started seeing, and yet what we see never captures the true essence of the King of Ages who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. So what's at the heart of this second word is a warning about seeking to worship the Lord in the manner that we decide we want to worship Him, rather than in the manner that He demands to be worshipped. We don't have time to go into this, but, but, but why does he demand this way and not that way? Because every one of his commands is rooted in the deep love that he has for his people. It, it's, it's, it's not rooted in him just being a petty, naggy, nagging shrew. It's, it's rooted in he loves his people and he wants what is best for his people. And in wanting what is best for his people, he wants his people to focus upon him 
through his word. And when we, and when we are word-centered in our lives and in our worship, so in other words, when we're here corporately and when we scatter from here corporately, um, to be word-centered is with the aim that we would be Christ-focused. For when we see Christ, guess who we really see? He says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says in Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes that He is the image of the invisible God. And yet currently, even now, Jesus has left this earth and He's ascended to the Father and He's at the Father's right hand. And yet I would submit to you that in eternity, guess which person of the Godhead we will be able to visibly see? It is Jesus. The other members of the Godhead will always be invisible to the natural eye. And yet we will, with the natural eye, see Jesus. And yet even today... It is through the Word and by the blessed agency of the Holy Spirit that we see Christ. Not see Christ in the natural eye, but in the, in the sense of what Paul speaks about in, in Ephesians chapter 1, the eyes of our hearts. In other words, a spiritual kind of seeing. So as Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So even today, the, the member of the Godhead that one day we will visibly see is not visibly seen by us, and yet through the agency of the Word and through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, we, in a whole other realm, get to behold Jesus. And then John, in 1 John, writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and uh, what and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Our lives as followers of Christ is not tethered to visual images that the natural eye can be enamored with. No, our journey this side of eternity is centered in the word that it might be by the spirit focused upon Jesus that we might have a demonstrable evidenced love for our unseen savior for the spirit and the word have opened our eyes and now by the eyes of our hearts we now see Jesus we now see the one who lived a perfect life in our place. We now see the one who laid down his life on the cross. We now see the one who took our sin upon himself. We now see the one that has bore up under the curse, the stroke of just justice, our, the condemnation of our sin. We now see the one whom God has raised from the dead. We now see the one who is seated at the right hand of God. And yet one day, we will see the one who will split open the, the clouds and gather us into himself.
Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word that we get to know you and to love you and to know of your love for us and to live in relationship with you through your word. And that this word shows us Jesus. Father, we are grateful. So, Father, even this very week, may our hearts and minds and lives be happy to have your word. That in having your word, we would seek it and read it and know it and memorize it and meditate upon it. That we would, in fact, this very week, through the eyes of our hearts, see Jesus. For only Jesus can bring us peace and joy and strength and hope and life. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's